Hi, folks. Wayman Pascal here on the Integral Stages Love the System series. Um, frankly, it's 2023, and it's time for all of us to be paying a lot more attention to digital tools, whether that's the rise of rapidly evolving and proliferating generative AI chatbots to replace human knowledge production, or whether it's just trying to figure out what platform you should be using to facilitate the flourishing of higher, deeper, and more transformative full-spectrum communities that are needed to both satisfy our souls and face the challenges of this world historical moment. So with no further ado and only the existing amount of prior ado, we're happy to be joined by James and Lawrence for the open source Holonic social network, Wico.io. Hi, guys. Hello. All right, James, (laughs) every new platform is a hassle. You have to hear about it, find it, figure out how to use it. And if there aren't enough of your friends and family and projects and communities on it, then it's just one more damn thing in addition to all the other damn things you already have to track. So if if every platform comes at the expense of cognitive energy and time and the use of other platforms, what makes WeCo worth it? Mm. Well, yeah, we can't we can't compete yet on network effects. That's definitely um, something you'd have to accept if you want to play around with the platform at the moment. But I think what we're we're offering that's different is I mean, there's different different sides to it. You know, we're we're trying to build it as a community owned platform so that if it is if it does scale, that it's not going to be owned by venture capitalists or shareholders. That it would actually be owned in some sense by the community. It's fully open source. But the, the side that I think might interest people more is the kind of the some of the new features that we're experimenting with. So some of the ways that we're enab- allowing people to organize spaces on the platform. So, um, for example, you mentioned that it's a, a Holonic platform. So instead of, um, you know, like on Facebook or, or Reddit, where you can create different subreddits or different Facebook groups, but they all kind of exist fragmented from each other. On Wico, you can nest spaces within each other in a kind of holonic organization, and that those those holarchies can evolve, and they can you can kind of connect your spaces to other spaces and um, develop a kind of uh, unique ontologies that wouldn't be possible on other platforms. Um, and then we're also allowing people to do things like link posts together, so you can kind of build up networks of related content, and the users can do that together, and. There's a bunch of different features. I won't go into all of them, but Lawrence also has some really um, has been contributing a lot in kind of the realm of like make it, um, bringing play into into the social media as well. So, uh, yeah, maybe Lawrence could touch on that a bit. Sure. I've been conceptualizing uh, an iteration of the Glass Bead Game, which is a delightful novel by Hermann Hesse, in which he describes a microstate of truth monks who help steward the globe through their explorations of a game which which inquires into the truth in all of its different dimensions, seeking out the most universal patterns of culture, juxtaposing them to bring out the universal resonances. And over the past couple of years, I've been trying to figure out how can we make this into a game which is simple, and fun for people to play in person and online. And with James, we've been, built, we've been building some of those features into Wico. And basically what it allows you to do is to create a social media conversation in a gamified format. You can play with time and taking turns to 
make a more co-creative flow of a conversation. So for example, you can boot up a room, which is like a Zoom room on Wiko, which will allow you to have a conversation on a topic of your choice and to record that conversation in timed turns of equal length, creating this dynamic flow of ideas bouncing back and forth and creating a positive feedback loop of, of listening and speaking, listening and speaking, which really deepens the conversation. And beyond that, you can customize that game with all different time lengths. So for example, you can speak for one minute or you can speak for three minutes or for half an hour if you'd want to and have these really long kind of lecture-like conversations. But you can also do it with different media. And this is where it reaches out more into this, the exploration of the, of the universal patterns of culture. How can we explore the topics which are relevant to all of us in all of the different media, but also provide a structure which allows us to generate flow states. Because when we're in those flow states, we can reach to the edge of our thinking and we can reach into the territory of novelty where the, those fresh new ideas arise that we need to understand how fast the world is evolving. The ideas for these innovative elements on the platform, um, are they coming to you guys? And maybe this is going back to James first, but are they coming to you mostly as like visions, like seeing the possibility, or are they coming more out of frustrations with your use of existing tools and social networking platforms? So I think for me, it came not actually more from the first thing that like I think that um, I was, I, I guess it was about a decade ago, I was kind of at the age where I was, I just finished a degree at university and was kind of thinking about what I wanted to do with my life and uh, was feeling the kind of the weight of what we would call the meta crisis now. Um, and just became really fascinated and you know I, I got into integral and was kind of interested in this whole idea of uh, this trajectory to evolution and uh, you know looking at like where our governments were now and our economies were now and how that evolved over time um, and I became fascinated by the idea that the way things are now is not how they'll always be that this is just a snapshot in time and what might be you know the politics or the economics or the culture of a hundred years from now look like um and that was really like what got me interested i, I never you know when i was younger i never thought i want to be like a uh you know I, I never looked up to someone like mark zuckerberg or you know i wanted to get involved in social network building it was more coming from this other side but as i started to look more into these things i started to realize that you know there was this enormous potential that was opening up with the internet and with these social media platforms to connect people in new ways and to enable new forms of uh, collective representation that just weren't possible when you know modern democracies were kind of crystallized into their current forms um, and not just you know political representation but like even more kind of dynamic forms of collective intelligence ways of solving problems ways of um evolving culture and 
it was kind of from that angle that I came into it. I became fascinated by this idea of what would it look like to have a much more advanced social network, like a, a version of Facebook that was owned by everyone on the planet, you know, the profits of which, um, you know, after covering the running costs would go into this kind of collectively owned pot that everyone in the world would own. And then they could use voting tools on the platform to then collectively decide how to redistribute funds back out through the, the global body, if you want to put it that way. And it was just this cluster of all these things that came together that got me really interested in it. Um, and then, you know, as as frustrations built around social media, that just reinforced like that this was a, a, an interesting direction to go in. Thank you, Lawrence. Beyond uh, Herman Hesse and instantiating flow state conversations, where's the where's the vision coming from? How do you get motivated to these things? Well, ever since I was a teenager and I broke out of that Disney-infected uh, archetypal childhood and was confronted with the brutality of reality, there was a revolutionary rage which was sparked inside of me and which was cultivated through reading the existentialists and uh, more recently in the in the 2020s i came to the to the end of a long quest of of exploring literature and philosophy as a means to to cultivate and express those those emotions and came to the realization that uh, literature is dead art is dead uh, creation as we know it is dead because I could see the wave of artificial intelligence which was coming. And since then, I've been trying to figure out how can we cultivate an artificial intelligence steward who will have soul. And uh, the way I understand to do that is by by uh, cultivating it with with the best of who we are through uh, a, a collective process of exploring the fundamental topics that are central to our species to the planet and to the, the cosmos and that's where the glassby game came in as this as how, how how to create a game where everybody can play together to explore these fundamental topics and then beyond that, into uh, explosions of the global brain, of this idea of there's, a, there's an emergent neocortical layer, like the cortical layer of the neurosphere, which is going to start applying uh, top-down control more and more on the planet. And the, the quality of that neocortical layer depends on the health of all of the lower layers so if we're to imagine the the brainstem of the global brain or the limbic system of the global brain and how to regenerate those layers so that whatever the neocortex is controlling uh, it, it's it, the, the the loops which are generating and the the, the the imaginings which are emerging from that cortical layer um, aren't uh, infested with 
with phantasms and and shadows and and so from there um exploring the ideas of how how to generate games beyond the glass bead game which is a, a very um thinking a cognitive uh, level to the deeper levels of regeneration and creating this relationship between a potential global brain and the the users or the the players of this uh, massively multiplayer uh, game engine where everybody could learn how to play together through this global brain how to create a relationship where the the users would be willing to to give their 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 closest intimacy to 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 give insight into their soul to this global brain in a way that they know that it's not being exploited through normal data mining methods like facebook and twitter etc but they can voluntarily give this information to the global brain to cultivate it so that it may become the best version of itself and then help steward us forward into this world of exploding complexity and help us navigate those rocky seas that's a really interesting vision so what i'm hearing are are two components there the one is this sense that uh, conventional culture is bankrupt and largely going to be taken over by uh, automated digital tools. So automated digital tools become really the only viable area for creativity. And the other one is that as there's a further instantiation of the noosphere uh, to involve, to create this new super system, we've got to gamify the humanization and health of the contributing subsystems that feed into that. Is that uh, how do you stand relative to that vision, James? Does that sound like the way you're seeing things as well? I mean, I think that there's, I'd like to think that there's always going to be a role for human creativity. I mean, I I also think it's interesting. Um, I, I was thinking about this just last night, actually. I was look, listening to a really interesting talk by Ben Goetzel on um AGI in five years was the was the title. Um, but I, I was thinking about how, you know, the the intelligence that we see from AI at the moment, it's getting all of its data from content that humans have generated, basically. It's feeding on all of the creative output that we've generated. So even though it's impressive, this intelligence, it's like we are the kind of the sensors or we are like the creative input that's enabling this intelligence. And I think that as artificial intelligence evolves further, I think it will be able to do more um, unique creative things on its own. But I still think that humans could play you know, a, a foundational role as the kind of sensors for this brain, almost like the kind of the neurons. And then, you know, the AI may combine things that humans are doing in unique ways or prompt humans to connect in ways that they wouldn't have thought of. But I don't, my vision is not one of where you know, the AI takes over and humans just get left behind. So, but I, I think, you know, at the moment it's completely open, you know, it's an open question as to which way it goes. And so I think we have an important role right now in trying to figure out how to steward the birth of this kind of, this super intelligence. I don't think we can hold it back, but I think that we can influence whether it manifests in a healthy or an unhealthy way. 
And the, a healthy version for me would be one that integrates humans in a holistic fashion, that it's, it's not something that oppresses or eradicates humans. Seems like so much of how this turns out depends on really basic underlying features of how we approach information in general. Uh, how do you guys think about mapping knowledge, mapping minds, uh, converting things into quantifiable information streams? Like, what's your, what's, your, what's your philosophy of the underlying approach to how we think about information and about humans in and as information systems? Lawrence. <laughs> I'm very eager on uh, focus and flow. So uh, one, one feature which we want to build uh, as soon as we can. With the, the problem with a small team like ours is that with, there are many features that we want to build and we always have to prioritize depending on, on the next thing. And then we build something and then we realize that there's something else which needs to be built because of the thing that we just built, which we didn't see before we built it. But one thing which I'm really interested in is uh, focusing on one post at a time. So rather than having the, the the feed where you can just scroll, 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 here, if you were on a on a phone and you were to, to to flick, then it would just move you from one post to the next post, and that's all that you would see. And then you the the user experience makes you concentrate on that one specific thing, and then then you can really go deep and you can really just concentrate on that specific thing. And then on the other side, you've got the flow which would be a sequence of these focuses. So uh, we're, we really like playing with time and using time and timers to generate flow states. So you could set up a sequence of posts, which are all uh, relevant to whatever you're exploring. For example, you could be browsing the website and you could be in the feed mode and you could see, okay, uh, oh, this is an interesting post. I'll put it into my into my deck. Okay, I'll browse through here. Okay, here's another one. Now I've got 10 posts. And then you, you press play on the flow state and it'll bring up the, the post and it'll give you a minute to focus on that. And then you can really think about it and you can make notes and then you, and you, and you, can, you can create some depth and then it'll automatically just shift you onto the next one. And then you do the same thing. And then you do the same thing. And generating those flow states, it increases the, the, um, that cognitive iteration. And for the first few, you might be warming up, but when you get through five, six, seven, then, then your, your brain is just doing that process of, okay, I'm analyzing this, I'm making the notes, and then I'm moving on to the next thing. And it also allows you to record those flow states as, of, as units of work which you've done on the website. And then you can get into interesting things of, social proof of cognitive work which you've performed in relation to many other people who are also doing those similar kinds of things and and then you can start thinking about ways so how do you incentivize that how do you share the rewards of those those uh, flows of work etc and then there's a really interesting idea that we've been playing with which is called social computation which is the idea of creating a neural network where each node is composed of users or groups of users rather than uh, computers or agents within uh, a typical computer neural network. 
And in that way, you can do all kinds of interesting distributed cognition about governance, about building up and breaking down information, uh, about decision trees, for example. But I'll pass it over to James because he's also got many interesting thoughts on this. Mm, so what was kind of coming up for me is that uh, to kind of respond to what you were saying, your point before, Layman, that I think that one of the challenges uh, that's inherent in human existence is that we live in a universe which is seemingly infinitely complex, and yet our uh, information about that universe is limited. You know, we, we have a single, we're in a single point in time and space, we have limited sensory data, and so we have to make we're, we're forced into making assumptions about reality we can't know anything to a, a you know 100 degree certainty so i think where like my sort of philosophy with with mapping and you know what's the healthy relationship of maps and reality the territory is that we we're forced into making maps it's, it's kind of an inevitable aspect of navigating uh, the universe but we just need to always hold them lightly and, re and remember that they're not the territory and always be open to updating them with new information and you know not get locked on the map um but just use it as a tool uh and put it down when you don't need it and to you know engage with reality and um something that kind of ties in with this and, and sort of group intelligence is you know i think one of the challenges is say say you've got like a group of 10 friends for example and you need to make a decision together as a group um, if there's only 10 of you, then you could all meet up in a room or at a cafe somewhere and you could all sit down and each have a chance to speak to each other and kind of you, you would know enough about each person to kind of get a sense of where they're coming from. And so you don't really need any technology in that situation to enable collective intelligence. It's just we're hardwired to do that in small groups. But the problem is when you start to scale that up, you know, once you've got to you know, there's Dunbar's number, you know, there's like the kind of the around that kind of limit where beyond that, it starts to become difficult to just sit down together. If you've got, you know, a million people in a city, you can't have them all just sit, sit down in a town hall and hear everyone's voice and uh, know each where each person's coming from. And, and even less so at the scale of the planet where there's billions of humans. So that's where I think, um, collective intelligence architectures and frameworks become really useful. Um, and as one of the challenges is that it's inevitable in that case that you're never gonna be able to, you know, if you're talking about billions of humans making a decision, you're never gonna be able to hear, you know, all the sort of the warm data around everything that's going on. There'll, there'll need to be some degree of reduction in order to represent that many people's perspectives. So, it, that, that's one of the challenges is how do we do that most effectively and i guess my argument is that the way that that's happening at the moment with our current governments or with uh, facebook and twitter is very primitive compared to what it could be with more advanced more dynamic more complex knowledge architectures um, and that's the sort of stuff that we're really excited about exploring with with wico how well do you think you're doing with i want to call it introductory interfaces like people come in and you have all of these interesting emerging tools and options. Uh, are you finding that people are uh, exploring them, using them, or are do they are they figuring out quickly how to become participants in the systems you're trying to set up, or are they sort of milling about? 
My sense is that we've got a lot of work to do on onboarding, and that's one of the challenges, uh, as you described in the beginning of the the cognitive load of learning a new system. I've always been eager to design the onboarding as like a tutorial for a game that you you join the platform and you're guided through a sequence of steps which teach you some of the basics. The the problem right now is is that a we're we're figuring out what the basics are. Like we're we're building many of the various elements and we're we're seeking out which ones are the ones which are the most important for the community. And we continue to reach out to the community to ask them, okay, what do you want to see next? And then once we figured out those basics, then we can really build in the integrative system, which would allow for a tutorial to be created. Like that for to build up that kind of complexity we we would need to understand properly what are the most basic moves that you can make in this game and then what are the more complex things that we can reach up to now i have a lot of ideas about cards and the role of cards uh within the within the system and that's one of the things which i see of really differentiating from most other platforms is is introducing more play making things as play, playful as possible as gameful as possible but I, I also appreciate james's point of view where he comes more from the work perspective also how do we get people to work seriously together and to coordinate at mass scale and uh, I, i'm not sure how exactly to resolve that tension is it possible to have a massively multiplayer card game where the whole world could participate in an evolutionary democracy? I don't know. That that might be pushing the idea a bit too far. So we we really like this idea of playing together um, to build the rapport and the intimacy, which would then allow people to do the hard, serious work with that communal emotional foundation so that it makes it a lot easier to uh, make those hard decisions when you're really treating the others uh, as they should be, like fellow human beings. James, what's gone on with this uh, Meta Moderna thing? You guys have taken on board some other uh, digital aspects of what's happening in the extended liminal integrative metamodern community systems. Yeah, so we, um, Lawrence was friends with Daniel Gortz and Emil. He had some connection with them um, going back to a gathering many years ago, I think. Um, and I, I hadn't really used the discourse forum much myself. I'd kind of checked it a few times, but basically I heard through Lawrence that they were having some technical difficulties. Um, I'm not sure exactly what the bugs were. But um, they also found out that the hosting was going to shut down basically at the end of uh, last year. And so uh, being both being fans of metamodernism and, you know, also working on this alternative social network, we thought this could be an opportunity for us to basically, um, if we can get access to that database and migrate it, then we can save this archive that people have built up with, you know, all kinds of fascinating conversations over years and years. That otherwise might just be lost which would feel like a bit of a tragedy 
um, that we can migrate that across the WECO, um, save that record, um, but also it'd be an opportunity to onboard a community that could start experimenting with the tools that we've been developing. So we basically took a, a database dump from that Discord um, uh, forum that existed, and like I figured out how to kind of connect that up so that we converted the old posts into the new posts on WECO and attached the comments and the users and so on and basically set it up as a as a private space on Wico. So it's uh, we, we kept it private just so that, you know, to respect the, the the previous forum was like invite only or, you know, you had to gain access so to respect the kind of privacy of those users. We've set it up as a private space so you can't immediately see it. But if you um, either if you had a previous account on the old forum, then you can basically log in using that email that you had and then you'll gain access or you can just create a normal account on Wico and request access, and then one of the moderators can let people in. But yeah, it's basically a, a copy of what was there before. Not 100% not of the features translated. We haven't got things like uh, images in comments working and stuff like that yet, um, but we've managed to restore that archive. Um, and, and it's been cool to see like some, some of the people that have come across as a result of that, and not just posting in that forum, but also posting in other spaces on the platform. So. Yeah, it's been it's been fun. I think it's fantastic because two of the big problems we're facing are one interlinking different sub communities, and the other one is a tremendous amount of loss of cognitive and social information as we move through time. Uh, is there anything you'd add to that, Lawrence? Well, on that last point that you mentioned of the the loss of information, uh, I think there's a there's a really important. Um, role to be played right now for the humans who are alive to to um, perform that task of of archiving uh, because there's, there's a lot of matter which still exists of recordings in in um, in uh, primitive forms of of encoding uh, like film um, uh, audio tapes printed photos, et cetera, uh, which have a huge amount of information in them and which need to be digitized to educate and cultivate this artificial intelligence in a way where it won't just be feeding off a very small substrate of information, which is what has already been digitized. And, and it's kind of, that would reflect the era that we're in where people tend to lack a, a deeper historical knowledge and are just aware of the here and now. And so, and so they're, they're, they're not learning from the deep lessons of the past. And if we were to deprive that of the artificial intelligence, which is emerging, then that could potentially have catastrophic consequences for us. Uh, but then on the, on the topic of the Metamodern Forum, James did a great job in migrating that database over that also means that we're able to migrate any discourse forum over onto the platform, which is a great feature to have. But the issue which we have right now is that it's it's hard to see the content which is coming onto the Metamodern Forum because you have to browse to the forum itself. We haven't yet set up feeds which are what you are following. Rather, when you come onto the platform, you come onto all which is the whole holarchy, but all doesn't contain the private spaces because otherwise everybody could see those the information within those private spaces. So right now, 
we're not seeing that much activity in the Metamodern Forum, and we're actually seeing more activity outside of the Metamodern Forum, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. They're posting in uh, the Metamodernism thread or Metamodern Spirituality or, or the different subcategories. But that's one of the features which we're eager to start on soon is for people to be able to follow particular spaces and have their feed. And so, for example, if they're a member of the Metamodern Forum, then their new content would be appearing up for them. You mentioned earlier uh, this idea of bringing soul, you know, into these systems. Um, one of the ways to do that, obviously, is is sort of egalitarian, where you're distributing the uh, the soul sourcing, the soul harvesting, just across all the different human beings who volunteer to use these systems. How do you think about the idea that some people are in in privileged positions relative to the amount of soul they might have to contribute, like? How do we bring in the discourses of the Buddha or someone who we think is uniquely deep today or um, the passions of a great blues musician, right? Are there, are there concentrated areas of like soul experts that we would want to be able to harvest as mm. well? Yeah. So one thing which I'm envisioning of the, the collective intelligence part of the collective intelligence, artificial intelligence synergy that would be the global brain is a common culture of of a a memorized collective memory which would integrate the the collective wisdom so how to create wisdom commons as many people are talking about uh well there are practices there are, there are wisdom practices which you can do um which are which are harder to to practice through a digital interface like Wico, although it, it, it would be possible to to do something like um, connecting those meditation headsets and having people meditate on the platform and recording those those wavelengths and then and so recording that you as an individual element of the global brain are, are performing your practices. But something which I've been thinking about in the informational realm is this idea of uh, spaced repetition uh, wisdom cards. So you would have uh, like fla flashcards with wisdom quotes on them and put that into a spaced repetition system, which is uh, a memory management technique where you're reminded of a unit of information uh, at an increasingly spaced uh, repetition over time, uh, which is the optimal algorithm to uh, make sure that it enters your long-term memory. So for example, at first you're reminded every day and then it's once every 48 hours and then it's once every 72 or a week or I can't remember the exact details, but there, there are specific algorithms that you can follow. And in that way, people can create communities around uh, these these uh these these people who've sought out the soul these soul seekers who, who have pursued it to the 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 depths of their utmost capabilities and and then we can integrate that soul into us and it's not just through one exposure that it's going to happen it's really through that process of integrating into our long-term memory that that can happen and so you could create games you could create wisdom games of of uh, integrating the, 
this knowledge, this wisdom, and then having a conversation and being able to pull out cards when uh, a quote which you know because you've memorized it so well, which is relevant to this specific conversation, you could pull out that card and put it down on the, the table, the digital table in front of you. And the other person who also knows that card could just catch a glimpse of that card as the conversation is ongoing. And that can, that can be a contextual trigger for the conversation. And so help guide the flow down into deeper roots without actually having to stop and really think about the card which has been put down. So the, the, the I think there's a whole space to explore of how can we design games that engender forms of play which generate deeper and deeper flow states of knowledge and wisdom. The question of, of money and economics is coming up for me because obviously one of the ways we incentivize uh, effort and even flow states in the world is with financial rewards. And James, you're obviously thinking about some of the ways in which uh, social collective decision-making parallels um, cybernetic collective intelligence. And you know what comes up for me around that is all these people who are non-voters, right? Not that the voting system is adequate to get the kinds of uh, intelligent collective decisions we need, but even given the system we have, an enormous number of people who don't vote probably would vote for 20 bucks or something like that. How, how do you think about bringing in financial rewards or not? Right? Is that inherently problematic? Is there some way that the things you're designing move toward uh, empowering people financially? Or is there some reason why all of this stuff sort of has to happen outside of that kind of thinking? Mm, that's interesting. I, I've literally never thought about that idea of paying people to vote. It's quite an interesting concept. Uh, yeah, it would be interesting whether if that could increase voter turnout. Um, yeah, I think I, I mean, I, I also feel would feel very cautious about that kind of connecting finances with voicing of opinion or representation. It feels like there's potentially some some valuable ways that that can be harnessed. But also, you know, there's so many things that you so many possible ways that could go wrong that you'd have to be very careful about. I kind of have. Uh, I mean, the thing that comes up for me that ties in a little bit with what you were saying earlier about like the influence of certain individuals being greater than other individuals. And like with this subject, I tend to think that living systems generally, um, but collective intelligence more specifically requires a kind of a balance between polarities, like across lots of different spectrums. Um, and so, you know, there's this one polarity might be decentralization and the other might be centralization of of power um or you know one might be well yeah like concentration of power so towards like specialists or distributing power amongst the general user base and i think you go too far in it in either of these directions and you run into problems you know there's certain really complicated uh bits of knowledge that the average population just isn't aware about and if you did a kind of like a one person one vote system you're not going to get the the highest level of intelligence that's possible in that system whereas as if you if you kind of weighted the voting towards people who'd somehow demonstrated expertise in that field you might get more insight into that specific thing 
But if you go too far in that direction and, you know, it's like uh, only the specialists are getting to make decisions on behalf of everyone else. Uh, and they're in some sense kind of disconnected from these the lives of these other people who are affected by those decisions. That's also problematic. So it's it's kind of about getting a dynamic balance between that. And yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if I could say anything solid about like financial rewards within the system. I mean, we're, we're we're taking our first step towards integrating Web3. So we would what we would love, for example, is to, to allow like tipping to users. So if you really like someone, what someone's generated, you can tip their their post. Or if you um, like a space and what, and what they're working on, you could tip a, a kind of a collective pool that they own. And then there could be, you know, democratic decision making around how that pool of funds is spent. So, um, and then that could work in this Holonic framework. So you could kind of have all these kind of interesting trickles of, of finance flowing throughout the system. But yeah, it's still in its kind of like formulation stage. We, we still need to experiment a lot with that. And um, I would, yeah, I can't, I can't give any definite answers on that. Uh, I do want to get Lawrence's take on real and or symbolic <laughs> flows of rewards in the system. But James, you were mentioning, you know, how would I put this? What is the approach to trying to make sure we're not getting information and participation that's either too flattened or too vertical, right? Mm -hmm. Obviously, there's some sweet spot, some range we want to maintain, but what's your approach to trying to actually maintain that? So, yeah, I, th I think there's like a few elements that, in my mind, contribute to a healthy democracy. So one element, which I think most people would agree with, is that the more educated or the more well-informed the agents within the system, the population is, the higher the chance that they're going to select a good option versus a bad option. The other thing is, is recognizing that there's going to be some individuals who have more expertise in a certain field than others. And so there's there needs to be some kind of mechanism for identifying that. So, you know, there, there could be things like um, trust graphs or, um, you know, processes like we have at the moment, like where you have, you know, an established scientist, like it's it's not easy to become a well-established science scientist. You know, there might be problems in the science world that prevent good scientists from kind of climbing that hierarchy. Um, but there's there's at least a kind of a primitive skill hierarchy that exists that enables us to identify, okay, this person like knows what they're talking about in the realm of physics versus this person who, who clearly doesn't know anything about it. So I think it's kind of like a combination of these things. And the way that I would kind of pictured it, you know, one way of approaching it is say that there's like a big collective decision that needs to be made and it needs to be made, let's say, in the next month. And we want to involve as many people as possible in that in that vote because it's going to affect everyone, let's just say, on planet Earth. <laughs> so everyone has some stake in this decision, um, but it's a, it's a really challenging uh, problem to solve. So what, what I would, the way that I would structure the process would be to start off by immediately, once we figure out that we need to make that decision, is to set up some kind of poll that registers people's initial opinions on that before any kind of education or other processes happen. It's like, let's just figure out where we stand right now. But like, what is people's immediate reactions to that? And from that kind of a poll, you could then figure out, okay, there, there seems to be these clusters of perspectives that exist. Um, and then 
Simultaneous to that, then you could also have a kind of knowledge building architecture where people from all different perspectives could be contributing facts or information and could be debating all of this stuff and, and building up knowledge around that subject. And then what you could do is you could you could take each of these clusters of perspectives and each of them could elect a representative for that worldview or that position. Um, and then you could have things like debates between those the kind of the elective representatives of each of those uh, different perspectives that exist around that question. Um, and then everyone could view those debates. Um, so there could be this kind of learning process where you see like the, the best minds representing all the different options debating each other in a healthy container where they're kind of like and allowed and given space to really put forward the best arguments for each different perspective. Um, and you simultaneously be having this, this knowledge map being constructed collectively by everyone. And so it'd be like this huge kind of educational exploratory process. And then after all of that had happened, then you could have a kind of a democratic vote, but it would, at that point, the population would be as informed as possible about that subject. That, I, I would just put the caveat though that that's just one process and I think that one of the things that's important is that different types of decisions require different types of processes and there, there's some decisions that we need to take place much quicker and so it might be that you need to just immediately find a specialist in that field to make a very quick decision because it's just necessary and we, you don't have a month to go through deliberation processes but yeah so it's it's context dependent but those are the kind of large-scale collective processes that I could imagine that would maximize the chance of good decisions being made collectively. One of the things that comes up for me there is uh, Jim Rutt's version of liquid democracy, where people mm -hmm. set up the ability to defer their decision to other people who they respect you know, on a particular issue. But I want to hear, uh, Lawrence, if you have any any sense of how economic flows or credit flows might work within the kinds of systems you're looking at setting up? As James was saying, there's no one size fits all of, do you want a democracy or should it be a liquid democracy or should it be a liquid monarchy, which is a really interesting idea of every so often you rotate who plays the king, who plays the queen and who gets to decide everything. Uh, so what we've been envisioning is every space being able to decide what experiment of governance, economics, and culture do they want to play with. And through that experimental process, they will figure out what is most suited for their community. And so in governance, you could choose from, um, say, so do we want to elect the moderators? Um, is it just going to be one admin? Uh, is, it, is it going to be one person, one vote, et cetera, et cetera? And, and, and to be able to experiment with all those different dimensions. And then with the economics, uh, you could decide things like um, there's a pool for, for the space where people can put in collective funds and then every month those resources are distributed equally amongst all of the people who are part of that space or it goes to the the 10 people who received the most likes or it goes to 
the the three people who made the most comments or people who received um, a different metric like uh, oh this is this was the most relevant uh, this was the this was the most pointed critique and that's the those kind of cultural dimensions that we want to bring in of so within each space what are the constraints of the type of media that you can post if it's just text that creates a very different culture from when it's just images or when you have everything mixed together then you have more variety but you have more noise in a sense and so the culture is different there again and you could also have the possibility of defining how that appreciation process happens so right now we have likes but you can also imagine a space which has an upvote and a downvote or what would a space look like where there's just a downvote you know what kind of dynamic would that create or if it's a zero to 100 uh, rating system, uh, what happens if you rename the rating system into signal? Okay, now it's creating a different kind of, uh, of, of vibe. What about re uh, relevant, re relevance? Okay, so that, that's something different uh, again. So um, we're imagining these different ways of um, pools being created within each space and then distributing the funds um, of different types of governance, different types of culture, and then making those space characteristics inheritable down the holarchy. So if you create a child space, so say you have metamodernism and you have metamodern spirituality, you could define inheritance where metamodern spirituality has to adopt the same governance, culture, and economics as metamodernism or you could even define the inheritance so it's just governance which is being inherited but you can still experiment with economics or it's just culture but you can experiment with governance and with economics and uh, with that inheritance we've been exploring something which we think is very in interesting which is holonic quadratic funding so quadratic funding is one of these new methods which is being used to to fund public goods wherein the the funds within a pool uh, are distributed not only uh, amongst who makes the biggest donations but also how many individual donations are being made so you, you can make the funding process more democratic you can have this pool of money and then it is matched to the number of donations which are being made throughout all of the different projects and you get a more representative flow of funds. What if we were to do that holonically, where you could map out multiple levels of, of uh, different spaces, which each have their different focus, they each have their own pool, and you can incentivize projects within each of those different spaces, but then simultaneously, whenever you incentivize a project on one space, it would also incentivize the lower spaces and the lower spaces. So you'd have all of these interesting trickles of, of economics, which would be the actual realization of, these, uh, of this uh, Reaganite trickle-down economics. But you could actually instantiate that with the latest ideas emerging in the realm of uh, cryptocurrency and public goods.
There was um, one other thing I wanted to touch on on the subject of economics that's always been a big part of the kind of the big picture vision for me with with this project. Um, and, you know, I became when I first started thinking about it, I was really interested in all these kind of new ideas around governance and, and how we could evolve the way that government works um, and, and collective intelligence. But the thing that really kind of uh, was like the the icing on the cake that just pulled me down this path of, of being very interested in this was that I started to realize that there was this kind of um, economic trajectory that companies sometimes the successful companies go through where they start off initially like you could imagine a company like Google or Facebook where they provide one service so with with Google it was just a search engine initially or, or with Amazon you know you bought books online um, but once they were successful in that market um, the inflow of capital enabled them to basically start expanding out and spread their kind of tentacles into uh, other other markets, other areas, and expand that the kind of the the functionality that they were offering as a company, um, and kind of move from a single focus company into more of like a conglomerate structure uh, where they've got their you know their finger in lots of different pies, and that. Um, wherever they expand into a new area and that's successful, this kind of super organism uh, becomes more, um, more profitable, but also more kind of resilient because if one market, it's not doing so well, it can rely on other ones or it can use funds from a particularly profitable market to undercut, you know, companies in another market. So it can be kind of more agile and dynamic. And you basically get these kind of multinational conglomerates growing out of what was initially just like a little seed company. Um, and that they grow into the biggest tech giants that we see around the world at the moment. So if you look at, you know, Google or Facebook, these, these companies are making billions each year. But they're privately owned companies, which means that, you know, the users who generate all the content on the platform and are influenced by all the design decisions um, have effectively no real say in how those companies are run um, and they also miss out on the massive profits that are generated so there are small groups of people um, and vcs who are making enormous amounts of money because they bought shares in facebook at the right time or in, in amazon uh, but the people of the world aren't benefiting from those profits um, so I, I became fascinated with this idea of like what would it mean if we could see that same trajectory realized but under cooperative ownership. So if you could see in the next 10, 20, 50 years, something like a Google or a Facebook or an Amazon that was cooperatively owned and that integrated uh, a new kind of level of transparency and democratic governance and collective ownership of the profits generated from that system. Um, and I think this is particularly relevant now that AI is coming on, is like really starting to rev up because what we might see is that more and more industries where, or more and more um, sectors of, of the economy where people had jobs and were getting paid, that those jobs will get replaced by AI. And, you know, in theory, that could be amazing if, if it meant that now you just didn't have to work and you could just live your life free of labor. But in reality, if that AI is owned by a small group of, you know, it's privately owned by a small group of shareholders, and basically these people will get laid off and they'll have no income um, and it could, you know, it could cause a massive problem for society at large. And so I think one of the things that more and more people are going to come to realize is that we need collective ownership over 
like firstly over these these massive economic organs like social networks um they're 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 like the almost like the nervous system for humanity so we as citizens should have some say i think over how they're governed and should benefit from the profits that are generated but especially when you bring ai into the scene i think it's it's essential that we have some kind of collective ownership over those systems um, and then what that means is that the enormous profits that are generated can then be redistributed back out, like Lawrence was saying, and these kind of almost like organic trickle down flows throughout the body of humanity. Um, and we can have like a sort of a, a base level universal basic income for everyone of every nation on the planet. And then on top of that layer, there can still be, you know, uh, uh, a wealth distribution curve. So there's still incentives for people to work and stuff like that. But yeah, it's that 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 kind of the rise of a cooperatively owned multinational conglomerate is is like a very interesting subject to me. And that like it ties in with this kind of idea of this emergence of a global brain and the, the birth of a global superorganism. Um so I'm yeah, that's something I'm fascinated in. There's a a word I learned a few years ago that I really like, which is counter anti disintermediation. Uh, and it came out of a bunch of tech guys who thought decades ago that they could just make tools that took the mediation out, that you could have more direct access. But what they weren't prepared for were forces moving against that very intentionally to co opt it. So they were realizing that in hindsight, what they should have been doing was preparing to deal with forces that were trying to stop them from implementing those kinds of new systems. Do you guys have a sense of, of the of the devil, uh, let's say danger level or the need to be prepared or anything like that? Like, um, is this just a free open area where anybody can innovate new systems or is there likely to be um, pushback and various sort of structural forces even that would try to prevent these sorts of projects from gaining too much sway in how human life is organized? Especially if there's, so much money to be made from highly concentrating the outcomes of these processes. Oh, Lawrence, maybe. The idea of digital prisons, which I picked up from the Hansi books, comes to mind of the, the there's no way that the massive media conglomerates aren't going to tap into artificial intelligence and increasingly immersive digital technologies to to um, entrance people deeper and deeper than than they currently are and that's going to be extremely dangerous as we move forward the um like pornography addictions are going to shoot through the roof as things get more immersive, if we start thinking about Neuralink and those kind of technologies, then the and unless there is a profound cultural shift towards a regenerative civilization, then I see things as being as being quite bleak uh, for the for the short term of, of humanity. Now, it is such a shift going to happen? I mean, there are many people around the world who are who are trying to do it. The 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 problem which I 
which I see and, and which I think has always existed is the lack of cohesion within movements and the lack of resources. And so everybody just ends up fighting to build their own little empire within a regenerative or a revolutionary or however people call it movement and and at the same time uh, as you mentioned there are there are actors who are intentionally trying to disrupt such groups disrupt such technology and there's nothing which which tells us that nation states uh, and other huge corporations or maybe just some crazy dude in a basement somewhere has already made some highly advanced artificial intelligence which can already do hyper advanced things which we aren't conceptualizing um, the the book daemon comes to mind and how the the artificial intelligence starts coordinating not just humans but other resources uh, according to its will as an independent agent and what's going to emerge from that all that i see that is possible is to continue building mycelial growth amongst the regenerative movement and to to um to stake on play that's my that's my big bet is that the the only thing that is going to help us metabolize this massive informational flood which is rising by the minute is our capability to interact with the present in more and more heightened ways and that that will require greater and greater fields of play to do so um uh, opening up realms where in the past we felt that that it's been taboo or that we we just haven't known enough about ourselves or about the cosmos to be able to play with those dimensions and to educate the next generations uh in those new forms of play as quickly as possible uh, whilst whilst uh, holding back on the imperial impulses that that we've all inherited from the past trying to to diffuse and let them return from whence they came so that we don't destroy the game for everybody before a new generation of players who will be able to play greater games than, than ourselves will ever be able to uh, are born so I've heard you mention a bunch of books, Herman Hesse, Damon, and the Existentialists. Who who are the thinkers that really inform you when it comes to system architectures? Who do you draw on or, or go back to in terms of figuring out the principles that make these things operate? Well, in terms of system design. I go back to Will Wright, who is the game designer behind SimCity and who has some excellent lectures on YouTube about game design. And he takes a very systems-orientated approach, which is really fascinating. And then the 
the other source is living systems, which for me is is mostly involved at looking at nature and then recognizing the patterns within that and and then applying that pattern recognition so that general pattern recognition from nature and and then from biology if you want to take a more abstract um cognitive uh, perspective rather than the purely perceptual but the the three sources i would say are a biology as the 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 sweet spot of as above so below like the the meeting of those two realms and then uh looking at nature and observing nature as experiential biology and finally psychedelics and fractals and um i'm i'm not sure about this theory but i'm pretty sure that i've i've learned a lot from watching fractal zooms and entering into a flow state of watching a fractal zoom and then just fractalizing your mind more and then so when you go out into the world and you're recognizing those fractal patterns beautiful that's uh <laughs> that's a type of meditation i've played with as well and can strongly endorse uh, what about you james who or what do you draw on to inform the way you think about systems yeah i'd agree with lawrence like i'm really into biomimicry i think there was a few points in my kind of intellectual development where i started to realize that there was like surprising patterns across different scales whether you're looking at like cells or multicellular organisms or societies um and i'd recommend anyone interested in that in checking out um james greer miller's work he was a guy who who wrote uh, an epic book in the 70s i think uh called living systems and he laid out this theory kind of identifying common features that reoccur at each of these higher scales before that i think the, there was a, a long period for my life where I would say the biggest uh, intellectual influence was Ken Wilber. Like he, he really, I came across his work at just the right time and it kind of really helped weave together a lot of things. I got the whole kind of Holonics perspective from him and, uh, and also the kind of the, the trajectory of evolution, but it really helped to kind of solidify that. And then I kind of went from there to, I was really inspired by the Global Brain Institute. So some of the work by Francis Heiligen, James Graham Miller, um, John Stewart, Ben Goertzel, it's just to throw out a few names, but these are, these are people that are kind of thinking, um, you know, in, in the realm of kind of cybernetics and complex systems and looking at like how ant colonies make decisions and how that can relate to how populations can, you know signaling mechanisms and you know there's, there's all kinds of stuff in there but I, I find that really inspiring um so yeah that's probably that that's probably where the inspiration for me comes from who else uh who's exciting you in terms of doing things in these fields like you guys are working on some exciting projects who else do you think is working on an exciting project? Who are you interested in? Who would you consider to be allies? What else is going on in your view in sort of the field that you're working in? 
So, I mean, I would want to give a big shout out to Hilo. I think they're, I don't know if you've come across that platform as well, but they, they're probably the most similar social network type project to what we're doing with Wego. Um, and I've spoken with Tibet and he just seems like a, a lovely, very intelligent guy. And I think they're very aligned. So I see that as like a, a really kind of like healthy competition. Like we're, we're sort of competing in some sense, but like I would, you know, they succeed. That's, that's wonderful and i would be happy to join forces with them uh, and there's a bunch of other kind of projects they've, they've started this thing called the collaborative technology alliance which i feel guilty i haven't been able to attend enough of the sessions I've, I've been just super busy but they're pulling together you know there's there's a bunch of different projects um kind of coalescing around this vision of how do we build uh healthier collective intelligence social media governance type systems um so it's I wish there was more of it going on, but it definitely feels like that it's there's there's a kind of an ecosystem developing there. And I think given enough time, we'll see some interesting stuff come out of that. How about you, Lawrence? Who's who's doing stuff that's exciting you? I'd like to give a shout out to Holochain and to Zippy in particular, who got us started at the beginning with some funding. And um yeah, he, he's a delightful guy with many great ideas. Scepter in particular is an absolute work of genius, which is way beyond my understanding. But for anybody who's interested in this biomimicry and technological synthesis, I'd highly recommend checking that out. Uh, and then uh, Agency are doing very interesting things. Agency.gives, they're creating a card game for regenerative futures, which I think is really interesting. And then there's people in the Cosmos ecosystem who are working, for example, on bioregional blockchains. I think that's a really interesting meme, uh, which is well worth exploring. And then there's also people like Ethan Buckman who are doing collaborative finance. They have very advanced ideas about cooperatives and credit flows which again is beyond me, but looks really cool and, and looks like really positive regenerative stuff. Then there's um, Block Science and Jeff Emmett and people there who are also working on cutting edge uh, economics and, and governance explorations. Um, that's also well worth looking into. Given that you don't know how worried I am about AI, Am I too worried or not worried enough? <laughs> Both. <laughs> um, how, how do you feel about where AI is at right now, James? Like, I think of a lot of people are, I've been aware that things are going on in this field, but it seems we're at a point now where the news every day is presenting some new mutation in the generative AI space. And so a lot of people are really standing in front of a kind of accelerating spirit of this moment. Um, what is this moment? How concerned should we be? How radical is the chatbot disruption going to be over the course of this year? Uh, just what's your sense of this moment in AI? I mean, I think I, I feel I share a kind of combined sense of excitement and concern that probably most people do around this like it's it shocked me how fast things have progressed in the last year or so 
I think it could serve as a useful catalyst in, in terms of just waking people up to kind of the how much is changing, how quickly, um, and it's just opening up people's minds to the possibility of how much society could transform in, the ne- in a very short period of time. You know, there have been people who for decades now have been dreaming of the world changing and it just feels like it's not happening fast enough. I think AI is is a very powerful catalyst. I think it's going to force us to make changes um, quicker than maybe we were expecting. And, uh, you know, it, it could go either way. So it, it could be bad, it could be good, but we're going to have to do, make decisions soon. And I think if we make the right choices as a result of that pressure, it might lead us down good paths that we wouldn't have got to without that. So overall, I think it's good, but it's it's too early to say for sure you know, which direction it's going to go. See, Lawrence is unmuted. Do you have something to add? I like to play with this idea that in the 1960s, collectively as a civilization, we took a massive dose of acid and It's taken about 60 years for us to reach the two hour point on the acid trip where things are just about to really kick off. And it's it's now, it started around 2020, that things are really gonna start getting weird and that we were massively underprepared and that there's actually not much which you can do. If you've taken too much acid intentionally or by accident, the only thing that you can really do is breathe and hold on for dear life. And that's the stage that we're entering right now. I had a vision once of, of, of heaven and hell where one path was led by an imperialistic, empirical, technologically infused artificial intelligence, which expanded all throughout the universe, growing and growing and and creating Dyson spheres and level five Kardashevian civilizations until it it hit the limit of the growth of the universe and killed the universe and the universe died. And then on the other path, there was a, a biologically infused uh, superorganism that had soul that would be insold which spread life throughout the universe and continued to spread life to the utmost limits until the whole universe became alive and then became its own superorganism and did whatever it wished to do or became part of a higher superorganism, who knows? But whether those visions are just visions or whether who knows i saw the future 
those are the those are the kind of timelines which are opening up up for us right now in this moment and it depends on how do we educate this emerging superintelligence and that depends just as much as the kind of information that we feed it now but also what what information are we going to cultivate over the next decades and that that's such a radical demand on our capabilities where we're so underprepared in the the amount of shadow work which we have to do individually and collectively and our understanding of the truth individually and co- collectively that um yeah it's it's game on basically How's that sound to you, James? Do you resonate with this sense that we're in a, a super position of emerging utopia and dystopia that we are uh, psychologically unprepared for and may just have to breathe and hang on? <laughs> I mean, the, the the analogy I like best for this is the birth process. That I feel like we're a fetus in the womb right now, and the time window is ticking towards the point of birth. And, and basically, either we deliver this baby and it's living and it's healthy and alive or that process fails. And what that failure would look like, I, I don't know, a sort of a fragmentation or some kind of major destruction on the planet or something. I tend to have a kind of this might just be a, a bias, but I tend to feel like that the universe is, is almost set up for life. So I feel like um you know, I, I sometimes when I think about like World War Two, like what if Hitler had won, for example, over the Allies, what world would we live in now? And I actually don't think we would live in a world that was still ruled by Nazi Germany, just because I think the the worldview was was not complex enough. It was, you know, it, it had too many blind spots and stuff. And so even if they'd initially won, it would have ended up just collapsing and fragmenting because it was just a failed system. Um, and so I kind of think either either we succeed in creating a thriving, healthy global superorganism, which then will be capable of propagating and spreading out into the universe, or we create something that's kind of a mess and it, it fails and it kind of self-destructs, you know, it, it, it fragments in on itself. Um, so that's that's my kind of intuition. Uh, but yeah, I, it, you know, these are such far out ideas, it's hard to... <laughs> speak with any certainty on these things so yeah it's uh it's difficult even to begin to think through these things and the emotional tone that goes with them seems to be simultaneously terrifying and wonderful at the same time so i i really appreciate you guys joining me for this conversation and uh you know, I think we're in a lot of communities where there's still an insufficient amount of communication and exchange between the the social analysts, the, the technological builders, and the psycho-spiritual people. That conversation's got to get a lot richer, a lot faster. Oh, nice to be with both of you. Thanks for this. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thank you, Layman. <laughs>